Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features vocalist Owen Park of Jez Waldo 6. We hope you enjoy. Lovely and wonderful gentlefolk, welcome back to the Sam Weavers podcast. As always, I am your hopping host, Dr. Rosanna Moore, and my delightful and fantastical co-host, who is in the same time zone as me today, is the wonderful and delightful Dr. Blair Kerner. How are you, my dear? Can't complain, can't complain. So who do we have on the show today? Well, I'm super excited that we have yet another group from my homeland which always makes me very excited and also a vocal group we have Owen Park from Jeswaldo 6. The Jeswaldo 6 is an award-winning British vocal ensemble comprising of some of the UK's finest consort singers. They were described in 2020 by Gramophone as ingeniously programmed and impeccably delivered, with that undefinable excitement that comes from a group of musicians working absolutely as one, which I just think is a gorgeous quote, especially for talking on a chamber music podcast. So without further ado, hi, Owen. How are you doing this morning? <laughs> Hello, both of you. So nice to see you. Thanks so much for having me on. We're always excited to have vocal small ensembles, which are always a very exciting thing. Many of your members and former members have a background as a choral or organ scholar at cathedrals or at Oxbridge. Uh, how necessary was that when picking the singers that you wanted to work with? Yeah, so... Um... In the UK, we're blessed with an amazing uh, choral tradition. Uh, and so it's uh, when I was at university with several of these uh, people, uh, it was it came together quite naturally, really. Um, so a few of the members uh, who started with us had actually left uh, university maybe one or two years before. So they'd kind of been through that. And I got to know them uh, because the choral world is very small uh, and people talk uh, and everyone's quite good uh, friends with each other, at least on the surface. Uh, and so, so you hear about uh, all of these um, sort of wonderful singers and it's nice to, uh, nice to have had the opportunity to kind of get them all uh, in the same room to make some music. We have such a rich history of choral music. It's so great. I, I must say that's one thing I kind of miss in the US. I do, I do miss a good choir. So you recently recorded a music video, Heloise Warner's Chronosol Fetch. So this is like a two-parter. Can you talk a little bit about the experience of recording a piece during a pandemic, um, as well as actually the piece itself, the rhythmic elements, such as blinking, gnashing teeth, and clapping faces? <laughs> okay, well, I could talk about this piece for hours, but I'll try and condense it uh, for you. The, the most amazing thing, I suppose, about the last couple of years is that 
nobody had really ever been through the same thing before. And of course, there have been uh, pandemics, but with the internet and with everyone being so well connected and with technology being where it is, um, the response is so different. So us as musicians, we were looking at what we could do to still remain creative, remain focused, um, support other people as well as try and support ourselves. Uh, and so uh, I thought it was really important to look to composers and see if we could get uh, them to write us some interesting music, particularly music that we could perform uh, while we were, let's say, at home or while we weren't performing in public. And so I watched Heloise Werner do these amazing videos uh, her Corona Solfege series uh, and they were basically just her kind of hitting her face with her hands and chomping her teeth and kind of blinking weirdly and the, uh, and the most amazing thing is I remember watching the first few videos while they were on mute so actually it was much a performance um, as it was an audio uh, sort of experience a visual thing as an audio thing and so I I knew her from uh, from university and also from performing circles in London and thought, right, okay, is there a way that we could combine uh, what we do with what she does? Um, and she kindly agreed to write us this piece. And I must say, when I first saw the score, I, it was very difficult to, to work out what we were supposed to do because you can imagine with choral music, you generally get some notes and some words and maybe the odd instruction about how to how to perform the piece. Um, with this piece, it was all instruction and very little in the way of actual notation. So it was trying try to, and, and she'd done a, you know, an amazing job of kind of putting her thoughts down on paper. But for us, it was completely a weird experience. So thankfully, she came and rehearsed with us. And then we recorded the, the piece eventually in my kitchen. Uh, so my friend Andrew, who is he's in the video, brought a large bit of black uh, sort of um, sheet sheeting and we ironed it on the wall <laughs> and then and then and then then we've got one camera and a, a lighting thing with somebody holding a mirror underneath um and it's all in my kitchen so i made while we were singing i made them a cup of tea and then we did a then we did a take <laughs> i don't think it's necessarily what let's say our um, original audience back when we formed would think we would be doing um but it's amazing to see where it's gone we, we had a feature in the bbc proms magazine about it um and that, that that kind of exposure is 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 fantastic for us and also for for heloise as, as the composer of that as well yeah. so so i think we achieved our aims of reaching a new audience and also sort of developing our performance practice during the pandemic I have a follow-up question to that, which is essentially these are extended techniques for voice and I guess body percussion. Any <laughs> advice for someone who wants to go around with slight slaps to faces and gnashing of teeth and so forth so that they can be more mindful when they might take on such a project? Yeah, absolutely. I suppose it's like maybe playing a brass instrument or something. If you try and blow as hard as you possibly can, you're not actually going to make as much noise as possible. You need to have a bit of a technique behind it. So what Heloise taught us to start with was don't bite too hard just just go easy uh, you'll make you'll make enough noise uh, and and your tongue's less at risk of being severely injured so just she, she was very very helpful uh, yeah so just just less is more love it love it due to the nature of your group many of your works obviously have a sacred element to them how do you engage modern secular audiences and bring them into the concert hall or in this case the cathedral 
Well, it's it's certainly something that we've had to think about is is how we uh, entice people, if you like, to the performances because we're, we're lucky in, in that we've been performing for a little while now and we do have a good following, uh, especially in the UK. Um, and that enables us then to program uh, with a degree of flexibility because we're not trying to let's say um sort of please new people all the time because we know that people are going to come along and tell their friends about it and that sort of thing when we're going somewhere new that that is a con consideration and i suppose my kind of to slightly go down on a tangent while it might be a sort of modern secular society i do think that there is a place and also a, a desire from some people to reconnect with that amazing music particularly of let's say the 15th to 17th centuries which is as much as it uh, a historical artifact as it is a kind of living piece of music and part of the sacred tradition here so uh it's amazing to be able to keep bringing that back to life and find new things uh, with that music and i think the way that we program with putting sacred music uh, alongside either secular pieces or contemporary pieces um it, it gives it a, a lot of perspective and therefore people I think even whatever they uh, their personal faith is or isn't they are able to connect with the music at their level mm. so um, it, it's an interesting problem to have but we, we try and approach it from both a kind of academic and also just a purely musical sort of audience listening perspective as well what what do we think people want to hear uh, and can we present that to them in a way that they'd like to then hear it again Myself and Rosie are actually in the middle of a recording process ourselves. So we want to tap in a little bit into how you do your recording, specifically your albums. Um, the atmosphere and picking where it, and, and is just as important as the what of, you know, the what the music. So how do you all decide where you're going to be recording? Is it studios? Are you trying to get the natural sound of a cathedral or church? Absolutely. So we were founded in Cambridge and our first disc was made in the anti-chapel at Trinity College, which has got all of these really, yeah, ornate statues and that kind of thing. <laughs> and also the acoustic is just beautiful. Mm. And what we don't want as a group is something that's too too big mm. so we haven't recorded in a in a cathedral because actually in some ways the sound lends itself really nicely to more voices or more mm. instruments we, we tend to go for somewhere that's a little more intimate um, especially as it's a recording and not a performance I think that recorded sound we try and get in so that people can listen to it as if they're sat right at the front so they can really experience the words as clearly as possible and so they can experience the kind of musical thinking between the singers as well, which you don't get if you're sat right back at the, maybe halfway to the back of, the, of a cathedral. You certainly get the atmosphere, but you might not get the detail. So it's trying to bring br both of those things to the party. 
that's really great advice, especially if you're not sort of primarily working in a studio. It's good to make sure you have that atmosphere. Yeah, and we've, we've, we've really not worked in studios very much at all. We've had to do some broadcasting on the BBC, which is in their in-house studio and it's it's quite hard work for voices because your your voice is sort of is such a part of your body and then actually as an extension of that the room is then if you like a little bit of a resonating chamber so that's why when singers turn up in an amazing acoustic sometimes i feel as though we're empowered to sing even better because there's there's another level to our musical thinking um and, and that's why it's it, you know, people people sometimes sing in the shower, I suppose, because you've got the tiles there. You've got that little bit of extra acoustic. It's just right. <laughs> so in your 22-23 season, you are planning on giving around 60 performances, what looks like a world tour, and doing three video recordings. How do you manage the administrative portion of your ensemble? Good question. Um well, at the moment, uh, the, the administrative burden falls largely on me, and that's because th during the pandemic we had to change the way we worked and become increasingly flexible. And while we did have a uh, an agency that w was working on our behalf in the UK, they they were hit early on in the pandemic in March 2020, and they they folded. So since then, we've been relying on two things. Uh, one is our sort of foundation in the UK and knowing the right people and just sort of getting on with it and actually everyone in the group is so flexible and committed to it that that really makes it much easier and then the other thing is to have people in certain countries such as we have um, people working for us in France in um, uh, in um, in France in Australia and also in the USA as well so we made a tour to the US happen last November that had been put off for ages, but I'm so pleased that we were able to make it out. Um, so there's a balance between kind of on the ground stuff here in the UK and then people working for us abroad. And, and it's that kind of nice creative tension that I think, you know, keeps propelling us forward. And it's lovely to go back to places we've been before, but it's also really nice to visit new places. And we're so privileged as singers and musicians to be able to take our music to people. A little easier traveling with a voice than a harp as well. <laughs> I, I just feel so sorry for people. I mean, even, you know, cellos and that kind of thing, but booking extra seats on flights, the <laughs> amount of stuff. You, I tried to take an umbrella through uh, the other day and uh, the I, I thought I was going to be taken aside um, and shouted at because it was very, very, <laughs> very, very contentious. The festival had given us an umbrella, and this was a nice idea actually, because whenever you get flowers, you can't really take those home. Champagne, I mean, I, I suppose you try and drink that as quickly as possible, but often, often it doesn't make it all the way home anyway. But so the umbrella was a great thing, but yeah, I, I, I couldn't. Taking a harp sounds sounds traumatic. So uh, well done. <laughs> it, it's kind, honestly, it's kind of like being a pianist or an organist, unless it's somewhere where you need your instrument, you just borrow one there and hope for the best. Yeah, good point. <laughs> Carrying your instrument isn't the biggest challenge. What would you say logistically wise is your biggest challenge when you're touring? I suppose it's just trying to keep everyone healthy both in terms of a sort of positive mental attitude so feeling good about the fact that they are going to have to perform especially for traveling on the day we really try not to do that you know travel from place to place and then perform that day because it's just so tiring you want space to acclimatize you want to look around a new place when you visit 
Um, but also just physically to make sure everyone's um, ready to perform. That we're not too tired. We haven't been up too late the night before. Uh, we haven't been standing up for too long in the day as well. There's all of these things which, to be honest, it it probably is the the last five percent of any performance. I think you know because we because as professional musicians we're always trying we're striving for uh, perfection i suppose or, or at least as good as possible um and, and actually to to an audience i think that these things make little difference overall but to us it makes such a huge difference because this is not only our job but it's also our passion as well so we're so hyper aware of how everything's going so just to try and make sure that we're in a really good space uh, to do our best and then to enjoy the fact that we've performed afterwards as well uh, obviously you're mentioning a lot about like the health and the vocal health and a few other mental health as well. So there's a lot to consider as, as vocalists, but I also know that a handful of you are trained as organists, composers, pianists. So how does that get incorporated into your career? Where's the balance? How do you and your colleagues determine what's your priority, et cetera? That's a, always a sort of contentious thing, I suppose, because as musicians, we are challenging ourselves and if people are good at lots of things you want to be able to bring out the best in them for that and I think we try and bring that into the group while acknowledging we are a vocal ensemble but uh, we all have strengths in different areas as well um, so for instance our bass Sam is a fantastic pianist um, and in between rehearsals he can often be found on any piano that's available playing and, and and of course as a group we then have to balance the need for a little bit of quiet time with the latest piece of Ratmaninov he's been learning so it's just trying to get these two things to, to, to rub along nicely together um, and Joseph is an organist I also play the organ as well but Joe was an organist at Truro Cathedral for a time uh, and that was maybe four about four years ago and when the group was less busy and we were still sort of finding our, our our feet if you like he was able to to make that job work as soon as we became busier and had bigger ambitions it was difficult because while in uh, many other countries these distances seem trivial uh, to us so four or five hours on the train it is a long time in this country so uh, it, it did feel as though he was in a very different pocket of of, of the uh, of the country so we thankfully just before the pandemic he was able to I suppose move on from uh, that particular position and while he still plays the organ and we were able to use his skills in certain areas uh, the primary focus has been the singing So education seems to be really important to your group. Could you talk us through some ways in which you run workshops, both for vocal and composition? Yeah, education is fundamental to what we're doing, but we want to meet people where they are as well. So we don't have a program that we just turn up and do the same every time 
try and make it more of a collaborative thing so if we're visiting uh, a school or a university or a, a choir or something like that then we will work on what they want to work on whether that's us listening to their repertoire that they're going to be performing in a few weeks time and and offering our constructive feedback on it or singing for them and talking a little bit about the ensemble skills that we use or talking more deeply about their their technique and that kind of thing we're really happy to do that and i think it's nice to have that um slightly more of a personal touch uh, and so i suppose that means we do less of the sort of um turn up and sing a bit with some people and go home again it's more of a we're going to do a concert so how can we bring in people from the local community and make that part of our journey there um and it, and it is really important to, not only to inspire the next generation of singers i think particularly young singers but also to inspire the next generation who are going to listen to this music and appreciate it because while not everyone we work with in a primary school is going to become the next great consort singer a few of them might really love this music and it might mean a lot to them uh, later down the line so so you, you never know who you're working with or trying to inspire but it's important to really give them everything you've got that day speaking of talking with individuals of suggestions for repertoire you host composition competitions this is again another two-parter one what are the pitfalls that you see most frequently when people are writing for acapella voices and two how does the group adjudicate these competitions so we've run two full-scale composition competitions uh, since we were founded the first one was on the back of a, a young artist program we did, had at a London concert hall called St John Smith Square and they gave us a commissioning budget and we decided rather than to commission one composer we would open it out a bit and honestly we could not believe how many responses we got because they weren't done as digital files they were just in the post and I was still at university at the time and we had these little um, post boxes which we call pigeonholes every single day for maybe a week or two my pigeonhole was entirely full of submissions and th that was at once amazing and also very daunting because we had to look through all these pieces and sing bits of them and try and work out what these composers were intending and also try and make a, a fair value judgment on all of them we thought we might get 20 or 30 entries and be them in a position to be able to sing through them all and and you know have a bit of a creative kind of discourse about it actually as it turned out we just had to look at it and and my uh, i suppose to come on to your second point um that my kind of advice would be make it look as good as possible make it look like a finished published edition because that first impression matters so much to us as musicians i think um, since a lot of our audience are composers, if there is one piece of advice that you could give about writing for an acapella group, what would it be? I think I could I could talk about maybe four or five different things, but if it's one piece of advice, I'd say just remember that voices need to breathe. <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that the right answer? It's so important. and And, and not only that, we also have the text as well. So we want to be able to, uh, breathing is not only a, a necessary function to, to, to stay alive, it also gives us the opportunity to articulate or punctuate a sentence or a paragraph and give emphasis 
in places where if we're just singing the sustained legato texture, we're not able to do that. So I think if you're writing for voices, if even if you think you can't sing, sing it through and sing it through to the best of your ability because then that, that will tell you so much about what you've written and it will mean that we can see on the page that you've thought about it. As a group, you also brought out a podcast, which I believe started during the pandemic as well. Can you tell us more about your goals for this podcast? So we started the G6 podcast just before the pandemic. So actually, it wasn't a response to that, although actually it meant that we it was a very useful format, uh, mm-hmm. as we later found. Uh, but it was something we wanted to do just to see where it would take us and also invite our audience in in a much more informal setting a lot of what we do as musicians is is very formal uh musicians i mean are but particularly our group presenting ourselves in churches and cathedrals looking smart um and, and that kind of that, that professional veneer which which i think is important in in some contexts but the podcast enabled us to really just rip that curtain down and go actually here we are as people and also try and talk to some other musicians about their experiences as well, which is so important because we can seem quite closed off as ensembles if we only think about ourselves. Actually, there's so there's so many others out there doing very similar things to what we do and learning from them and talking to them can only enrich our experience and therefore our music making, I think. Yeah, that's actually part the reason why we started the podcast as well, because all three of us on the team love chamber music uh, we all commission and work with composers a lot so it was a case of going okay how do you actually run a small chamber group because i think i don't know if you had the same experience but in the conservatory experience in the uk and us you're kind of trained to win the job whether that's an orchestral or opera position or being a teacher and that's kind of it but you are still expected to do chamber music you're still expected to do all these other things but you're not necessarily given the tools to learn how to run it after you graduate when you don't have an assessment uh, that you have to learn music towards so I think it's something that's worth sharing definitely something that's worth listening to others and comparing and and moaning a bit about your experience and also that's right yeah (laughs) but it's so important because if if you bottle it all up actually it can seem much bigger than it is i have a technical vocal question how rare is it to find true counter tenors and do you know if the training for these roles are any different to a tenor baritone or bass I'd love to say that countertenors uh, have to go to some special farm somewhere <laughs> where they where they live and work together. Uh, maybe, probably without electricity, um, and and they're, and they're they're just <laughs> uh, they're, they're just sort of cut off from society, and then they turn up ready made a few years later. Sadly, they they walk amongst us. Um, you know, male voices sort of naturally, uh, when you go through puberty and you're kind of maybe in your early teens or whatever, your voice goes through a, a change there and really, you know, drops by sometimes an octave, sometimes two or more. Um, and, and what that does is it settles somewhere. And that's kind of where where a lot of singers ended up finding themselves. And, and I suppose if you think of a 
of every male voice also having the ability to flip back up into the higher register. So if you ever scare somebody when they're not expecting it, or if they're maybe mocking somebody, um, the male voice can, can find that kind of slightly higher timbre. And that's then basically where a lot of countertenors reside, is using their falsetto and um, kind of... It's basically just a different way for the vocal cords to meet. So the last question is kind of a choose your own adventure, but it's a, an anonymous adventure. So could you please select A, B, or C? What? Okay, I'm going to go for B today. B, what is the strangest request that you've ever received as a group? Right, okay, here we go. So we were once asked in 2016, I think, to go and sing in a cave and the cave floods for I think 22 and a half hours a day oh no so th there's an hour and a half window which you could get in rehearse for five minutes get an audience down do a performance and then get everyone back up safely before tide comes in again so that was one of those requests where sadly it didn't work out. We were already busy on that day. Uh, but actually, I must follow up again just to work out whatever happened to that because we still laugh about it to this day. So a huge, huge thank you to the wonderful Owen Park of the Jeswaldo Six for joining us today for what has been a really enlightening and fun podcast. And it's always, always fun for me to chat to folks from back in the UK. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sound Reavers Podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll visit us at www.soundweaverscast.com, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at SoundweaversCast, and on Twitter at SWChambercast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosanna Moore and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, Adam Paul Cordell. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers team. The music you heard in today's podcast was composed by Gerda Block-Wilson, Carlo Jeswaldo, Owen Park, Sarah Rimkus, and Thomas Tallis, and performed by Jeswaldo Six. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you in two weeks.